Last week we looked at a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. Prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in all of your deeds. Revive your work in the midst of the years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. Now, Habakkuk's big bold prayer kind of went this way. Lord, I've heard of the things that you've done. I, I know the stuff that you've done in our past. I'm in awe of all the things that I have heard that you have done. Do it again. Do it again in our midst and in our days. Um, And and what I want to do tonight is kind of quickly review just a part, just parts of what we talked about last week so that I can emphasize the parts that I didn't get to go over as much as I wanted to last week. First, we did talk about know what God has done, right? If we're going to follow Habakkuk's example of praying a do it again prayer, we have to know what God has done. Habakkuk was aware of the mighty acts of God. He was a student of the word. He knew the things that Scripture had told that that God had done for the Israelite people. Now, like Habakkuk, we need to be students of the Word. We need to know what Scripture has said that God has done in the church and through the church and for the church in days gone by. Now, I gave three examples that we'll just quickly mention. Deep conviction from the Holy Spirit. Lives were radically transformed. And then people were filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Of course, many, many more things could be mentioned that God did, but a lot of things fall under that, the umbrella of those three. Right? That in the Bible, what we find is that through the preaching of the Word, the Holy Spirit moved on the hearts of those who heard and brought such conviction that some trembled under the weight of the Word because their lives were out of sync. That the people were convicted at times so much so that rather than argue and fuss and fight, the Bible says that they cried out, what must we do to be saved? But we also saw that there were lives radically transformed. That people like Paul, who was a, a persecutor of the church, an insolent man, someone who blasphemed and, and did all that he could to shut up the name of Jesus, he was radically transformed and he became an apostle of Christ. And then there were people who were deeply entrenched in witchcraft and all sorts of evil spiritism. They became believers in Jesus Christ and they brought all of their stuff that went along with their pagan evil spiritual stuff and they burned it even though the price was exceedingly just an extreme amount of money. And then people were filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit that that the church, not just the apostles, not just preachers and missionaries and prophets, but but people, the, the church, the individual believers, right? they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were led by the Holy Spirit, and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and do the things that God wanted done. So those are some of the things that we, we have to know that God has done if we're going to pray a do-it-again kind of prayer. But then what, what's the heart of our message tonight is that we also have to believe that God still does what He has done. Now, Habakkuk lived in a time when God wasn't doing the mighty acts that he had done in the past. There there were no Red Sea partings. There were no water turned to blood. None of those things were going on. No, No sun standing still. No standing on the hill singing. And God brings victory over opposing armies. There was defeat. There was just nothing but the sure and certain Judgment of God falling. But despite the fact that God wasn't doing those things currently, 
Habakkuk still believed that God could. He still believed that God did. And so when he said, revive your works in the midst of the years, what he's saying is, do it again. Lord, all of those things that you have done in the past, do it again. And this is the heart of what we're talking about tonight, because the question is, do we believe? Do we believe that God still does what He has done? Now personally, I do. I do believe that God still does what He has done. What we see in Scripture, I believe God still does those things. I also believe that all Christians should believe this and we should pray for God to do it again. Now, last week I mentioned five reasons uh, people give, common reasons people give for not believing that God still does what He has done. And I covered them quickly, and tonight what I want to do is come back and spend more time showing from Scripture and history why these reasons are not valid. So, reason one, the time for this has passed. It's common view uh, that, these, that the time for this sort of stuff has passed. God doesn't do those things anymore. He did it in Scripture, but the time for that has passed. I mentioned last week a guy I read on, on the internet a few months ago who said the age of miracles has ceased. God doesn't do anything miraculous. God doesn't do anything supernatural any longer because the time for all of that stuff has passed away. Now, now everything that, we, that I mentioned, all of the three things, Right, that sort of deep conviction, the radical transformation, the, the filling and leading and empowering of the Spirit, all of that would fall under the categories of being supernatural or miraculous. And so those are the kind of things that they would say, well, God just doesn't do that sort of stuff anymore. That time has passed. Now, there are some variations to this belief system. One of the main variations has to do with when exactly... God stopped doing the stuff that He's done. Now, some say God stopped doing this sort of stuff at the death of the last apostle. Others say God stopped doing this stuff at the, the canonization of Scripture at the Council of Carthage at 397 A.D. And, and others may vary sometime between those two events. Right? But despite the variations on the time, there are typically... Two ideas that all of these people who say God, the time for this is past that they all agree on. First is, they do agree that God did do it. Right? Those who say that God has moved on and God doesn't do this anymore, they're not typically theologically liberals. Typically, they are people, if you were to say, God parted the Red Sea, they would say, absolutely. You would say that when the apostles prayed, in Acts 4, God shook the building. They would say, absolutely. Right? I mean, they would stand firm that God did it then. No matter what variation they have. But the other thing that's always true is that it doesn't happen today. Right? God does not move in those ways anymore. Despite the fact that it did happen, it doesn't any longer doesn't matter what day you pick, whether it was at the death of the last apostle, the canonization of Scripture. What we need to know is that we are right smack dab in the middle of the time when God no longer does these things. Now, given the, the numerous Scripture references to these sort of events, that God did do these things, 
that that I mean that God is awesome and powerful, that He can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. Given that Scripture tells us all of these things, you would assume that the evidence from Scripture saying that all of this stuff, that God working in this way, that it's going to cease, you would assume that there would be an overwhelming amount of evidence supporting this view. But you'd be wrong. There is actually no Scripture where we're told displays of God's mighty power will cease when the last apostle dies. There is nowhere in Scripture where we're told when Scripture is canonized, there'll be no more mighty moves of God. But all we have in Scripture are the mighty acts of God that He has done and things like this. I am the Lord, I do not change. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, if God can't or won't do what He's done before, despite Him saying He does not change, how can we be sure really about anything? How can we be sure God hasn't changed about the nature of salvation, that it's not necessarily by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? How can we be sure that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved? How can we be sure that we can cast our cares upon Him for He cares for us? Right? Because Scripture doesn't say He's going to stop doing that. And yet many have determined He doesn't. So what assurity do we have about really anything that we are sure about? God loves you. God cares. Take His yoke upon you. Find rest for your soul. How can we confidently affirm that God will do those things... And yet, without Scripture to back it up, we say He doesn't do the other things anymore. Now, the response to this would be, well, it's not happening. You say God can do it, and God still does it. Where's it at? Why aren't we seeing those sort of things today? And that leads to our second reason, because the two are interconnected, really. First, the time for this has passed. The second, I've never experienced it the time has passed reason and I've never experienced it reason are cousins that almost always go together typically people hold to both of these many of those who say such a time as this has passed would point to their own lack of experience and they would say see doesn't happen At the same time, many of those who have never experienced it, uh, the mighty moves of God, use their lack of experience and they conclude, well, it must be because the time for those sort of things has passed. So those two reasons are, are typically interconnected, intimately, closely interconnected. But they're but with both of them and going together with this, particularly with the second one, I've never experienced it. There are problems with this view. Right. Problem one is experience isn't the standard. Right. Something you find that's almost ironic about those who reject the mighty moves of God for today is that if someone else claims to have experienced a mighty move of God along these lines, they will reject it by claiming one, the experience wasn't real. And two, even if it was, your experience isn't the standard. 
Now, it's a fact. Experience is not the standard. That's truth. That's absolutely a fact. Just because someone claims to have experienced something they say was of God does not mean it is of God. That's a fact. But for an extreme example, we could take the Jim Jones cult. We would all agree that whatever happened with Jim Jones and his followers and the religious experiences that they had, it wasn't God that led him to take those people to Africa and consume poison and die, right? I mean, that that goes against the revelation of Scripture, of the character and the nature of God. So it wasn't God. That experience, no matter what he might have said or how he convinced people, or even what they felt, was not God. Experience never trumps Scripture. Scripture always trumps Experience. Always. So to say experience isn't the standard is true. However, it's also true to say my lack of experience isn't the standard. Right? Does that make sense? That just because I haven't experienced something, that doesn't mean that what you experienced wasn't real. My lack of experience does not trump your experience so long as it was consistent with Scripture. Now, for example, Romans 5.5 says that the love of God is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So let's say that one day you're praying and you're reading your Scripture. And, and, and really the context of that is in trials and tribulations. You're struggling. You've been depressed. Life has been hard. And you're praying, you're crying out to God, you're worshiping Him in song, you're reading Scripture, when suddenly you become very aware of how much God loves you. Your heart swells, tears pour, and you're nearly overwhelmed at the greatness of God's love for you. Now, an experience like that is completely consistent with what Romans 5.5 5 means. King James says, shed abroad, poured out in overabundance, that the love of God just flows Into our hearts. Now if you come to me and tell me about that time when you were discouraged and you were struggling. God encouraged you with His love and the Holy Spirit poured His love out in your heart and you were nearly overwhelmed by it. And I say, well wait, I've never had that experience. So what you experienced wasn't real. Does my lack of experience, does it trump your biblically sound experience? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Experience or the lack of experience is not the final arbitrator of truth. Scripture is. Just because you or I haven't experienced something, that doesn't make it not true. If it's in Scripture, if it's consistent with the Word, our lack of experience doesn't trump a Bible-based experience. Experience isn't the standard. The second truth, or the problem with, I've never experienced it, is that this sort of stuff, it does happen. This this stuff, it, it has happened, and it does happen. Church history is filled with stories and examples of mighty moves of God. 
These mighty moves of God range from miracles, healings, deliverance, radical life change, mass conversion, word and spirit, working together mightily, and on and on and on. Things that we see in the Bible. Let me quickly give you some examples. Today I watched part of a sermon where a guy gave quotes from what he called the big beasts of church history. Now in the quotes he used these guys... Uh, the quotes he used, these guys were testifying to miracles, healings, deliverance, radical life change, mass conversion, deep conviction by the Spirit, and Word and Spirit working together mightily. Right now, I'm not going to give you the quotes because we don't have time for that, but I'm going to tell you the names and the time frames that these guys said these things. Justin Martyr, 160 A.D. Irenaeus of Leon, 180 A.D. Origen of Alexandria, 250 A.D. Basil the Great, 350 A.D. Augustine of Hippo, 420 A.D. Now, if you're not a student of church history, those names are largely meaningless to you. But what's not meaningless is the time that these men lived and made these quotes. 160, 180, 250, 350, 420. All of those men lived after the death of the last apostle. And all of those men testified of mighty works of God consistent with Scripture. Because one of the things that they'll say is, well, after the apostles passed, all of this stuff stopped happening. But that's not the reality. The reality is the early church fathers, within within 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, after the death of the last apostle, they were still testifying to these mighty Moves of God. But all of the men that that I mentioned there testified at least once, if not multiple times, uh, of seeing God move and perform miracles and healings, deliverance, radical life change, mass conversion, deep conviction, word and spirit working together. And all of this was after the time the last apostle died. So while people that that would use these these two things to say it doesn't happen anymore, Those who lived immediately following the last apostle and who were the church fathers, they would say, I beg to differ. What we've experienced is not what you're talking about. Even after the time of the early church fathers, we see see stuff like this happening. The Welsh revival of 1904. 1904, a revival broke out in Wales. Article I read today said it was one of the most dramatic in terms of the effect on population. And it triggered revivals in several other countries. This movement kept the churches of Wales filled for many years to come. Seats being placed in the aisles of Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Swansea for 20 years or so, for one example. Meanwhile, the awakening swept the rest of Britain, Scandinavia, parts of Europe, North America, mission fields of India, the Orient, Africa, and Latin America. It's a revival in 1904. Mass conversions, deep convictions, radical life change, and it spread across the world. The First Great Awakening. What we call the First Great Awakening was a revival that broke out across England, Scotland, and America. In England, it was largely led by by John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. In Scotland, it was led by guys who have Scottish names I cannot pronounce. And in America, the guy we're most familiar with with it was Jonathan Edwards. Now, stories from this time picture people being under such deep conviction that they grab onto the post of the church for fear that they are about to fall into hell. 
They are so deeply convicted by their sin and their lostness that they scream out for Edwards and the others to stop preaching so they can be saved. Right now, one of the things I always want to point out with Edwards is Edwards was not a fiery preacher. I jokingly say that's because Edwards was a Presbyterian. But Edwards was not a fiery preacher. Edwards stood behind the pulpit. He read his notes verbatim in a low, monotone voice and never looked up at the congregation. It wasn't his excellent oration that brought people to conviction. It was the power of the Holy Spirit moving as he read word for word his sermon without ever looking up. Another example would be the Lewis Awakening. In the late 40s, early 50s, a man named Duncan Campbell was sitting on a stage at a conference waiting to preach. I heard him, I, I listened to a sermon where he, told, where he was telling the story. He was sitting on a stage waiting to preach. And he felt the Holy Spirit was telling him to go to the small Scottish island of Burnerey. Uh, and he told the guy, he was sitting there, he was up next, he told the fellow officiating the service, I have to go right now. The Holy Spirit is calling me to burn a rain. The guy says, no, you're supposed to speak. And he says, can't stay. And he got up and walked off. When he got to the island, he met an elder of the local church. The church had no minister. And this man was so convinced that Campbell was coming. Now, Campbell never sent word ahead. He just got up and went. This guy was already convinced that Campbell was coming and on that day that he already had plans for the church to meet that night for a revival meeting. When the church got together, they had meetings for several days. Uh, one report said the island was gripped by a new awareness of God. Some reports say that every single person on the island committed their lives to Jesus Christ. The Greenville Awakening. Right now, in Greenville, Tennessee, there is a revival going on. There's a great big tent set up. And the revival began 25 weeks ago in a Free Will Baptist church. You ever know a revival that went on for 25 weeks, seven days a week? So far, they have seen around 700 people commit their lives to Christ. Right now. This is going on. I mean, their, their, their service is going on at this moment. And the same fellow that started the revival 25 weeks ago is still preaching it tonight. Now, these are just big events. These don't take into consideration random one person here, one person there events. I'll give you a story on that. Um, a couple of years ago, the, the guy that was at that time the, the president of the International Missions Board for Southern Baptist Convention, his name is David Platt, told a story about a man from Southeast Asia converted by Southern Baptist missionaries who went into a village to preach the gospel. They'd never heard about Jesus. They'd never had the Bible. It was all brand new to them. They embraced it with joy to the point that they publicly burned their idols, their necklaces, and their amulets. Everything connected to ritual worship they burned and destroyed. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And that went on until the village elder, the village leader, died. And people connected uh, with pagan worship determined that the evil spirits were upset at their destruction of the totems and things that associated with them. And they began to try to push the Christians out. 
the Christians went to express their condolences to the family. And the man was laying dead in the floor in the tent. And while they were there, they prayed. And they prayed for God to show His love, His mercy, His glory, and His power to the people of the village. And when they stopped praying, the man coughed, and then he sat up alive. Now, Platt went on to say, I don't have any medical, I mean, I don't, there, there was no corner, I mean, it was a village in Southeast Asia, there's no physical evidence that the guy was dead. But he was dead according to what they understood, and man, didn't God choose an amazing time for that guy to suddenly cough? What a coincidence if God didn't raise him from the dead right there on the spot. There are also books written by reputable scholars on this subject. Two that are significant. One is The Case for Miracles by former investigative reporter Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel used to be an atheist, uh, and he was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And he was married to a Christian woman that basically nagged him to come to church and give his life to Christ. And so he set out as an investigative journalist to investigate the claims of Jesus to disprove them, to make her hush once and for all. In the process of his investigating the claims of Christ, he became a Christian and wrote the book, The Case for Christ. He's written several apologetic books. His most recent one is The Case for Miracles. And what he does is set out to prove the, the reliability of not only biblical miracles, but of ones like what Platt mentioned and, and other stories in the history of the church. Another is called Miracles, the Credibility of the New Testament Accounts by a fellow by the name of Craig Keener. Keener set out to write about the credibility of miracles, both biblical, historical, and contemporary, and he came out with so much information that his book had to be published in two volumes. Right, And there are... Pages and pages of verifiable notes in there. So it's not like he walked up to a random person. Hey, have you ever seen a miracle? Yeah, this happened. And boom, my knee felt better. And he wrote it down. All of the ones that both of them use are verifiable. Another one, and it's not in my notes because I couldn't find it on the internet. Um, but I found it once. And it's this funny article from a British newspaper. And the article in the newspaper is complaining because there's a woman on British welfare on full disability. And she calls them and she tells them she went to church and Jesus healed her and she's not disabled any longer and she wants the benefits to stop because she's going to go back to work now. And what the article was complaining about was they didn't unenroll her from welfare benefits because they didn't have a box healed by Jesus. So since they didn't have a way to to, to reconcile what happened to her with their box, they just kept her on disability. Anyway, that was the point of the article. It was kind of a funny thing. But it's also, it's a verifiable miracle because the, the they have before she was verifiably crippled, they have afterwards she's verifiably healed. But again, not just a random person who, state, who stated it. So the statement that the time for these things has passed, it's, it's just not accurate. God has never... Stopped doing what he's always done. There has never been an actual period of church history where God was not doing the sorts of things we see in Scripture. 
And just because you or I haven't experienced them, that doesn't mean that they aren't happening. They have always happened. They are happening at this very moment. So we we can confidently pray. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. But another reason people give is that it's not rational. But in our enlightened day, many people would say it's just not rational to believe in this sort of stuff anymore. You can't really believe miracles and foolishness along those lines. Now, I mentioned this last week. I'm not talking about atheists. I'm talking about people who are professing believers going out of their way to try to find reasons why the miracles in the Bible didn't happen. And some of the examples I gave last week, I'll quickly hit them. God didn't cause the walls to fall at Jericho. Instead, engineering was pretty poor back then. As they walked around, it destabilized the wall. Their yelling was the final thing that it needed, and it fell over. Great leadership from Joshua, but not a miracle. Jesus didn't multiply the food. When the people saw the little boy give his food to Jesus, they were inspired to give their food to Jesus. The miracle wasn't that Jesus multiplied loaves and fishes. The miracle was that everybody gave. God didn't save the three Hebrew children from the flaming fiery furnace. There was a cold spot that they fell into. And so the fire didn't hurt them. And on and on and on and on it goes. Rational answers that explain away miracles. Of course, if they didn't happen in Scripture, you can't really expect that they would happen now, can you? I mean, after all, if you can't believe supernatural events in our enlightened area, we're, we're too smart for that. There's always a rational explanation. And if there's not a rational explanation, then it was probably fake. It probably didn't happen at all. The problem with this is that everything about our faith is supernatural. I mean, think about it. Here's what we believe. We believe in an eternal God who existed before all things, had no end and no beginning. And He existed before there was stuff. And He existed in the vast nothingness until He determined there should be stuff. And when He determined there should be stuff, He spoke. And the stuff came into being at His Word. Now part of the stuff that He created was humanity. And humanity sinned. And they rebelled against this God. But He told them He had a plan that one day a Redeemer would come and He would fix all that went wrong. Now, to accomplish this plan, our God, who spoke the world into existence, spoke to a guy. And he said, hey, you go where I lead you and I'm going to do all of these things for you. And among the promises that he gave him was, I'm going to give you a child despite the fact you're 75. And your wife has never been able to have children. And he kept that promise. But he waited 25 years until Abraham was 100 years old. Abraham's descendants went into Egypt and they became slaves. And God delivered them out of Egypt to a series of judgments that include turning water into blood, the sun being blotted out, the death of the firstborn, the children of Egypt. And it culminated in God parting the Red Sea so that His people could cross on dry land. And then He used that same parting to crush the Egyptian army. Now eventually, God did bring that deliverer into the world and He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. 
He performed miracles like healing blind eyes, multiplying food, walking on water, and raising the dead. He died on the cross, but His death was sacrificial for all the people who had ever lived and ever would live to pay the penalty for their sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, where now, thousands of years later, He is still alive and making intercession for us. And how do we know about these events? We know about them from a book that God had people write and then preserved for us down through the ages for our learning and our edification. Now let me ask you, which one of those events is not supernatural? Which one of those events can be explained in a rational, enlightened way? None of them. They are all supernatural. The reality is, if we can't believe in the supernatural, we really can't even be a Christian. There is no aspect of our faith that is not supernatural. If we become so enlightened that we can't believe the supernatural, we are enlightening ourselves right out of the faith. God even said in in 1 Corinthians, to the wisdom of man, God determined that they would not find Him. Rational, enlightened explanations of the events of Scripture and life will never push people to God. It will always form a barrier that separates them. So it's not rational. I don't care. Do it again, Lord. Thirdly, Jesus said not to pray for these things. Turn with me to Mark 8, page 768. This is another reason people give. Jesus said, you ought not pray for these sort of things. Uh, look at Mark 8, 11 and 12. Pharisees came out and began to dispute with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek after a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Now, in another gospel, Jesus refers to them as an evil and adulterous generation that seek after a sign. So the argument is, only evil and adulterous people pray for this sort of stuff. It's a sign of a lack of faith, an evil heart. You ought not ever pray for it. But, is that the proper interpretation of the story? Before you answer, look over at Acts chapter 4, verse 29. And I didn't write the page down on that, sorry. Now hold your finger in Mark, because we're going to look at both of them together. Acts 4, the apostles are suffering, they've been persecuted, they gather together to pray, and here's what they pray. Now Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants... That with all boldness I may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They specifically pray for signs and wonders. 
Does this mean that the apostolic church, weeks, weeks after the ascension of Jesus, they had become evil and adulterous? Well, of course that's not what it means. So how do we understand this? Well, look, we're going to look at the two passages. We kind of have to look at them together. First, ask yourself, who was asking in each story? Right. Well, in Mark, it was Pharisees who had rejected Jesus. Right? They weren't even really testing to see if he was the Messiah. Right? They, they came out to argue with Jesus. That was their whole point. They came out to argue with him and to fight with him. They had already concluded he wasn't the Messiah and they were not going to receive him. Now contrast that with Acts. In Acts, it was his disciples who had just been threatened for healing a man and preaching in the name of Jesus. Second, ask yourself, what was the purpose of the request? Again, in Mark, the purpose wasn't for Jesus to actually do a sign and perform it to show that He was the Messiah, the Son of God. They were just looking for a reason to condemn Him. But contrast that with Acts. In Acts, they were praying for signs and wonders to advance the kingdom of God so souls could be saved, lives could be changed, and God would be glorified. And then third, notice the response. In Mark, Jesus sizes deeply. And again, in another gospel, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation, and he walks off. But then in Acts, the building shakes. They were filled with the Spirit, and with great power, God enabled the apostles to give testimony. To the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we look at at these two accounts together. Does Mark's account mean. It's wrong to pray for mighty moves of God. No it can't. It, It can't mean that. But however if you've rejected Jesus. And you're only praying for Jesus to do signs and wonders. To use the answer or the lack of an answer. To show others that there's really not a Jesus or a God. Don't expect him to answer. However, if you're a devoted follower of Christ and the reason you're praying for God to do mighty works in our day is to advance the kingdom so souls can be saved, lives can be changed, He would be glorified. Pray away. Motives and all of that matter. So pray. Do it again, Lord. And then finally, the last one. This is the path to deception. Many would say praying for God to do it again opens you up to demonic deception. But they, they seek to prove their points by pointing to what I call the crazies. Or they point to them and they say, this is what praying and seeking mighty moves of God, this is what it leads to. Now through the years, I think I have been pretty clear how I feel about the crazies. I mean, I refer to them as the crazies, so probably not thrilled I'm also convinced that much of what we see on TV, on the internet, from the crazies that is attributed to God or the Holy Spirit, it is actually demonic. I really do. I can show you videos that I will show you and I can point out and I will say this person, I believe, is demon-possessed. Now, I don't say that lightly. That's not something I joke about. That's not something I say about someone I consider to be a brother in Christ who is an heir in one way or another. 
for me to point at someone that is claiming to preach in the name of Jesus and say they are demon-possessed, I am, to the best of my abilities, solidly convinced they are demon-possessed. So does that mean that seeking God to do it again, it opens us up to the demonic and to the crazies? I don't think so. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11, page 793. It's a familiar passage, Luke 11, 9 through 13. Jesus speaking. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread of any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus says no human father would give his kid a rock if he asked for bread. No human father would give his kid a... And the picture is a poisonous snake if his kid asked for a fish. And no no father would give his kid a scorpion if he asked for an egg. So then if, if we, being evil, if we wouldn't do that, we would give good and not evil to our kids. How much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Now the point for our message tonight is that we aren't going to seek God and find the devil. That's just not going to happen. If we are seeking God for what we see in Scripture, and we are seeking Him according to Scripture, we are not going to find Satan. That's just not going to happen. If we seek Him for something that that He isn't going to do, That at this time, for whatever reason, he's determined, no, he's not going to do it. He is not going to turn us over to the devil. He'll simply say, no. Right? There is, he is our heavenly father. No child of God ever seeks God and ends up in the demonic. No child of God ever seeks God the way Scripture defines and wants God to do what He has done and ends up in the crazies. That's just not the way it happens. He won't allow it. Jesus said that my sheep hear my voice, that they know me. They will not follow another because they recognize it's a stranger's voice. Friends, we've got to have more confidence in God's power to lead, Jesus' power to guide, than in Satan's power to deceive. That's not saying, again, the crazies aren't wrong or some of it's not demonic. But if you're a child of the Most High God, filled with the Spirit of God, seeking God will not lead you to the devil. It's just not going to happen. Seek boldly. If God's not going to do it, all He'll do, all He'll do is say no. That's it. There is simply no biblical reason not to seek God to do it again. The only reason we would not pray for God to do it again is that we don't see the need 
or we just don't want God to do it again. I mentioned last week, if we don't see the need, it is only because we aren't paying attention. The church in America is struggling right now. The church in Guyman is struggling right now. Our church is struggling right now. And none of what everybody, what the churches are struggling about is going to be fixed by better plans and better programs or more talented anyone. It'll take God alone to turn the tide. He's done it in the past. He's done it in church history. He's done it in biblical history. And we, we need Him to do it now. If you just don't want God to do it, I honestly don't even know what to say to you. I don't have any words to comprehend not wanting to see God show Himself mighty on behalf of His church to save the lost, to restore our prodigals, to set captives free, to heal broken hearts, to turn nominal believers into fully devoted followers. of I have no, no idea what to say to you if you don't want to see it other than the fact you're just wrong. I want to see a mighty move of God in our time. Not just in some far off place. If the God moves in some far off place and I hear about it, I will rejoice. I rejoice at the Greenville Awakening going on right now. I pray for them that that would go well. As long as God would have it, souls would be saved, lives would be changed, churches would be revived. How wonderful is what's happening there. But I want to see it in Guyman. I want to see it in our church, in my heart, in my life. And every mighty move of God began really with two things. It began with people being burdened to see God do it again. One of the things you find is the great revivals didn't start with preachers. It was people whose hearts ached at the spiritual decline of their church, their community, their country. And then they cried out to God. And then God did what only God can do. A mighty move of God will not happen in our church, in Guyman, unless we want it to happen, unless we have a burden for it to happen, and unless we're willing to labor in prayer and cry out to God for it to happen. Let's be a people that cries out to God, do it again. And let's see what He could do in our lives, our church, and our community.